Welcome to the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years of experience. My name is Jari Bolander, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis, Ann Hawley, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. The rest of us explore different aspects of the story so we can understand it better. This week, Kim pitched The Girl in the Book as a great example of a story that doesn't entirely work. This 2015 American drama film was written and directed by Myra Cohen in her directorial debut. As always, this is an adult conversation and you may hear some adult words. But today's story also contains content concerning sexual abuse that may be triggering for listeners. And so we're encouraging you to take care of yourself and opt out if you need to. Kim will start us off with the genre and a brief summary of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story. I have a lot of thoughts about the genre of this story, not many of which are cut and dry. And I'm really looking forward to the insights from everyone else on this. So I'm going to give you the summary first, and then I'll walk you through my current interpretation of the genres at play. Okay, so here's the beginning hook. When Alice is assigned to oversee the relaunch of a best-selling novel of the man Milan, who exploited her as a teen, she must decide whether to stay on the project or have her boss reassign it and lose her leverage on a manuscript that she is advocating for. After interacting with Milan in person, Alice asks her friend Sadie to help her with the launch so she doesn't have to do it alone. In the middle build, Alice meets Emmett at her surprise birthday party, and they begin a relationship. But when Alice sleeps with the babysitter, and when Emmett finds out, he wants nothing to do with her. Alice falls into old patterns of one-night stands until she dreams of the physical abuse by Milan, which makes her reach out to begin to make amends. In the ending payoff, Alice begins to get her life in order, but when Milan reveals the new dedication for his book, the poem that he wrote her when she was young, it causes her to relive the moment when she disclosed to her mother what Milan had done to her, but her parents had sided with Milan. The memory incites her to decide whether to confront Milan or continue living in shame. She confronts him, and though he tries to gaslight her, she makes peace with the truth, reunites with Emmett, and begins writing her true story, The Girl in the Book. Okay, so let's talk about the genres at play here because we have a lot of them. For the external genres at play, I see a couple that are living in the esteem tank, okay? So we have a performance business story with her editing job, but we also have this performance art story going on with her own personal writing. And then the big one here is a society women's disenfranchised plot, which is a really major part of the story. Then in the love tank, we have a love courtship subplot between Alice and Emmett, which we all have lots of opinions about that we'll get to. So then shifting to the internal genres at play, again, in the esteem tank, I see in the past, we have a what I would what I'm calling a status pathetic story arc. And then in the present, I see us shifting over to the transcendence tank, where now Alice is faced with a morality testing triumph arc. Okay, so I just told you five genres, and I think some of the other folks even have different ones. So in all of that, what is the global genre? 
For me, it feels like the story is really about our choice to step out of our self-destruction, channel our pain for the good of others. So I'm calling this a global morality testing triumph story. Now, I think there's an argument to be made that maybe it's status sentimental instead, but I think Alice is sophisticated enough at this point in her life to be in the transcendence tank. There were several moments in the story that made this stand out for me, and it seemed to point to those life values of selfishness and altruism. It's of Alice, you know, knowingly withholding her gift. She's refusing to get the help that she knows that she needs, but later she shifts to owning her choices, taking positive action, and then giving her gift willingly. It's not unlike Uva's transformation in A Man Called Uva. Now, I've found that these kinds of stories are very important to me, and I'm really interested in, you know, what are those points in time when we become accountable for sharing our gift despite external circumstances? So I want to look at this, these types of stories for the stories that I'm writing and because I think it's great for life. Wow. There's a lot going on in this movie, and I know it's going to be quite complicated to unpack. I know the whole premise of watching this one was that it didn't quite work for you. So why don't you take us through that and then we'll hear what everyone else has to say. So I actually love this film. It works for me in so many ways. And I actually use it as a masterwork for myself and several of my clients. I find it particularly excellent when it comes to executing dual timelines of the past and present and the internal arc of our protagonist. I'll never forget the first time that I watched it. The protagonist's arc was so clear to me. And I distinctly saw internal arc for her in the past timeline, which again, I'm calling status pathetic, and then a different arc in the present, that morality testing triumph. And I also find the ending, the final, final ending, extremely satisfying. So all that said, why have I chosen it as an example of a story that doesn't work? Well, there are a couple things that don't quite work for me in the ending payoff. There are certain aspects of the love story subplot, as I said, but mostly it's this core event scene when Alice confronts Milan. It was completely unsatisfying to me when I very first saw it, and I was frustrated and annoyed by it on so many levels. So what I really wanted to do was dig deeper into what bothered me so much about a story that moved me in so many ways, and it's inspired a lot of aspects of my own work. So I must get to the bottom of what works and what doesn't and why. And for that, I needed my roundtable nerds. So I'm really looking forward to what everybody has to say today. For my contribution, I wanted to look closer at the core event and the core emotion to try to figure out what bugged me about the scene and other aspects of the ending payoff and how I would rather have experienced it. First, let's talk about what is a core event. Now, we touched on this last week in the Love Story episode. The core event as a story principle, is when the global life values are most at stake. It's the height of the core emotional tension. Whether we realize it or not, the core emotions are the reason we are so attracted to a particular story. Core emotions are the specific type of experience that we crave. So we have several key story principles that are tightly connected here. We have the human needs tank, and then the life values that represent that human need, We have the core event and the core emotion. And I would say that each one of these things begets the other. So the universal human need is represented by the spectrum of life values. And then the moment when these life values are most at stake is that core event. And then the tension of those stakes produces the core emotion. All four of these principles are wrapped up in your chosen genre, which is why once you can figure that out, 
you are well on your way to crafting a story that works. And that is a story that satisfies the expectations of your audience. Let's walk through a couple examples. In an action story, we know that the human needs tank is a physiological need that is represented by the life values of life and death that are most at stake when the hero is at the mercy of the villain and that tension produces a core emotion of excitement or adrenaline. In a crime story, this is taking place in the human needs tank of safety, which is represented by the life values of justice and injustice. Those life values are most at stake when the criminal has been exposed, and the core emotion here is going to be intrigue. In the love genre, we're in the human needs tank of love, which is represented by the life value spectrum of love and hate. And those life values are most at stake in the proof of love scene, and the tension of those life values in that scene produces this core emotion of romance. What is so interesting for me is that for writers, when you know one of these four things, you can pretty well reverse engineer it for the others. It's that proverbial, when you know X, solve for Y. I was talking with a client this week who struggles with the what's your genre question being the first thing that we're supposed to answer. He said, I don't know how to think about it that way. For him, he always begins with a character and then the character is struggling with something and wants something in a certain situation. And then he starts imagining possible scenes, and then off he goes. Trying to, quote unquote, name the genre precisely, it really throws him off. I think this is more common than we often talk about. I know for writers like myself and my clients who are globally focused on internal change, it can be really hard to pin down the change that our character is ultimately going through, especially because we often will change on all three of those internal elements. But what my client and I were able to talk through was that the character's wants and needs are directly related to the human needs tank and the life value spectrum that we use to represent them. So the genre names are basically placeholders for these items. Also, because we have awesome story grid tools and methodology, we therefore know the core event and the core emotion. But we could solve for it as well because it's innately in the form. So if you know the life values, you could work out the moment in the story when those are most at stake. That's when the tension is the highest. And then the moment when they shift. The turning point moment of a core event scene is crucial moment in a story. That's what generates the height of core emotion for the audience. If that moment doesn't work, meaning the audience doesn't experience that core emotion in that moment, their expectations are left unsatisfied and nothing is quite so disappointing as that. In last week's film, Love Story, I was not satisfied by the ending payoff because for me, it didn't produce that core emotion, which is romance. You know, it's that swirl in your stomach that makes your heart ache in the best way. So all of that said, let's look at our scene in question for the girl in the book. But before we listen to it, let's think about the core event scene in context of the global story. It is the big payoff of reader expectations that have been building over the course of the story. So all of the setups that lead to this moment are very important as well. The core event will be one of the 15 core scenes, but there's not really a guarantee which specific scene it will be. I would guess for it to be a turning point or climax of the middle build or ending payoff, but this is where you as a writer will bring your creativity and innovation. Okay, so let's listen to the scene. Hey, what are you doing here? Are you okay? Alice? Are you alright? Oh, please. Please. It's, um... 
this the new yeah. book? Yeah. Whose life did you appropriate this time? No one. Uh, well, there's bits and pieces here and there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a long time ago. What? What? Alice. It was such a long time ago. Concrete details. You must give me concrete details to make it real. I know, at that age, little things seem enormous. Your warm, heavy arms around me. The smoky taste of your tongue in my mouth. I was helping you. The feel of your heart on against my thigh. But nothing really happened. Yes, it did. Okay, I'm going to interrupt here. Everything up to this point is great. I love it. But the rest of this interaction just falls completely flat for me. It halts what was a very cathartic emotional experience and leaves us with hollow words that don't carry the impact that we need them to. Let's listen to the rest. Yes, but you seemed to enjoy it at the time. You were one of the few people who ever actually seemed to see me, to make me feel real and important. But you are. You used me. Oh, come on. You abandoned me. Alice. You made me feel like I was nothing all over again. Not nothing. It's, it's a beautiful character. I know. And I've been living in her shadow for 15 years. Goodbye, Milan. I've watched this scene a lot of times now, and I talked it through with my husband to try to get to the bottom of why it left me so frustrated. And I think it's that she starts to take her power back, but then it's like she surrenders it again. She doesn't hold firm to the truth and refuse to back down. She mentions that he used her and abandoned her and how hurtful that was, but she ignores concrete details like, I was a kid. I was a lonely, vulnerable kid, and you saw that, and you took advantage on purpose. You should have never been allowed to touch me. You stole from me, and then you lied about it. I mean, maybe at this point this would be considered by some to be too on the nose, but I feel like in this moment we need some force, some strong, clear language that he can't gaslight. And then she goes on to say, you made me feel like nothing all over again. And he says, not nothing. It's a beautiful character. And her response is, I know. And I've been living in her shadow for 15 years. Okay, this line is completely non-compelling for me. I want her to say, I am not a character. I am a real person. Open your eyes because I will not be ignored anymore. As written, it feels like she lets him off the hook. Now, I still find the story extremely satisfying. And there are other moments that follow this scene which bolster these core emotions of pride and empowerment that really fizzled for me in that core event. There's the moment when Emmett recognizes, you're the girl in the book, aren't you? And she says, not anymore. And of course, when she begins writing her story at the end and we see the words type across the page, the girl in the book, this is such a moment of triumph and a tangible way that she retakes her power, which is so powerful. I mean, talk about a big meta why. So I see the controlling idea of this story as we retake our power from those who've oppressed us when we choose to stop hiding, own the truth, and share our gift. Wow. Uh, thanks for that, Kim. What you're talking about 
makes a lot of sense to me now. I mean, as I watched the movie, I really didn't like it too much. It brought up a lot of weird things for me, but uh, the way you broke it down, yeah, it's like almost there. So, Anne, what what do you think about uh, the girl in the book? Well, I'm glad to go before Leslie and Valerie on this, since my thoughts about this story simply aren't as definite as theirs. I did experience this film as very powerful. I thought it mostly worked, 90%. And though I have no argument with the arguments that everyone else is going to make about how it doesn't work, I want to look a bit at why those things didn't bother me and give a couple of thoughts about how closely a literary story needs to adhere to the strict story grid structure in order to work. Under the heading of literary story, by the way, I include indie or art house or film festival films such as the one we're watching today. Now, I need to start by saying that I spent the whole day before yesterday in a truly wonderful workshop by Christopher Vogler. He's the author of The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers, and I'm sure most of our listeners are very familiar with his book. Vogler is the guy who famously translated Joseph Campbell's mythological studies into that seven-page memo that swept across the Disney studios and has resulted in a whole lot of big movies with plots that are on the one hand, very satisfying, and on the other hand, arguably a bit predictable. Now, it was a fabulous class, and I came away with a deep admiration for Mr. Vogler. I love his book. I refer to it often. It is the second most thumbed volume on my shelf of writing books after The Story Grid. Vogler's emphasis throughout the day was on the almost spiritual power of story, with an interesting new focus this time on showmanship. He revealed some of his research on the methods which various experts all men, by the way, going back to the ancient Greeks, have come up with to evoke emotion, engagement, and satisfaction in the audience. He laid special emphasis on the impresarios of vaudeville, interestingly enough, who knew how to send the crowds home happy. Now, Vogler is a Hollywood guy, and his specialty is big, popular, showy movies. So his course made a fascinating juxtaposition with today's small, intimate film. This is not a showy story. To the extent that it has an external genre, I think it's society, which can feel more internal when the story is set in the domestic and women's subgenres, or whatever we're calling them these days. It's all about men's power over a woman, and the core event is when she finally throws off the gaslighting and begins to seize her power back, as Kim has gone into uh, very deeply. The story has a distinctly literary feel, and to me, it sits right on that uneasy borderline where memoir meets fiction. Now, it's no secret that Maria Cohn, the writer and director, lived some aspect of this story in her own life. The film probably, and I'm conjecturing here, probably began as her own attempt to exercise her experience of abuse in youth at the hands of a celebrated novelist. I frequently repeat that stories aren't real life and characters aren't real people, and that as writers, we have to be willing to sacrifice some objective facts about life and people in order to tell a story that reveals a subjective truth. I suspect the writer of this film chose to include factual material from her experience in a couple of places where subjective truth would have given us a more fully satisfying story. Now, let me see if I can set this up and find some solutions that I think would still contain the core truth. For me, 
the core truth of this film is how difficult it is for a woman to take back her own power when the sexual abuse she suffered has been condoned or dismissed by the authority figures in her youth. I won't go into a scene-by-scene -scene analysis to support this conclusion, except to say that I could easily see many key scenes turning on values of power and impotence. Young Alice ends by running away. It's her only available act of power. Adult Alice gradually moves from giving in to being passive-aggressive to owning her mistakes and trying to face her faults to finally revolting against her oppressors, father and abuser alike. And I think that's a really key point. And I completely agree with you that this is what the film is actually about. And when storytellers have such an important issue to explore, nailing the fundamentals of storytelling, that is, the editor's six core questions, is essential. Absolutely essential. These are the tools in the writer's toolbox that will ensure the audience stays engaged and gets the point of your story. Yes, staying engaged and getting the point. Otherwise, why are we telling a story at all? Kim is absolutely right when she points out that the core event scene in this film is kind of ruined by the second part of the dialogue when Alice says a few too many things to Milan before dismissing him from her life. This is exactly where I feel Maria Cohn, the writer, left in some factual real-life material. Now, Milan, in common with a lot of real-life abusers, tries the tactic of reducing his offenses by saying nothing really happened, presumably because in his mind anything short of actual sexual penetration counts as nothing. This is a view that Alice has probably shared for 15 years. Why is her life so screwed up when nothing really happened? Her act of power is shouting, yes, it did, with total conviction. So then Milan has to try the next cheap trick. We seem to enjoy it. And rather than dropping back at that, admitting defeat, because physically she did enjoy it, we witnessed that very disturbing scene, Alice fires back. She explains why she opened up to him emotionally, why she let him do what he did, because he made her feel seen. Her answer makes sense and exposes a fact about the issue at the heart of this social problem of rape culture, that a bodily response to stimulation does not make rape okay, and that just because there was no specific penetration, that doesn't mean it wasn't a form of rape or sexual assault. But it deflates the scene because countering Milan's statement at all is handing her power back to him. She falls for his trick. The response Alice should have made, and Kim alluded to this too, is, I was 14, you were 40, it was wrong, period, own it, you asshole. The core event would have rung much truer that way if she'd said something like that, even if it would have meant leaving out some of the important facts about rape culture. The truth for me personally was cemented by the two lines, nothing really happened, yes it did. Memoir writers struggle with facts versus truth all the time, but it's a problem for fiction writers too. I've had a number of clients say they can't make such and such a change to the story because within the world they're building, whether it's a fantasy world or a historical world or some sort of contemporary real world, that change wouldn't be true. My answer is always, you are the god of your story. You can change things so that the universal truth you're aiming at shines through. And as long as I'm fixing this story, the girl in the book, there's one other repair I would like to make, the love story. I know we all agree on this. The idea that a good boyfriend is going to fix this poor woman is just offensive. 
And I really felt like some producer forced Mario Cohn to write that in. I would rearrange a few scenes this way to solve the problem. Alice's pathetic blog attempt does not work on Emmett. He's wise and strong enough to send her on her way, maybe advising her to get some help. No take backs. She broke trust and betrayed him. He can't fix her. He knows it and they are done. Then she would go to Milan and have that core event scene, seizing her power and saying the right things and not too many things. And then she starts life afresh without any men in it for a while and begins her memoir. Now, frankly, I'd have also loved a coda where her memoir comes out and some other women writers come forward with accusations of plagiarism, sexual abuse, or both, and Milan gets canceled and we see his book being pulled from bookstores and maybe agent dad, Alice's father, even starts losing clients too. That might be a little too on the nose, but boy, would it have been a satisfying story of impotence, power, and revolution. Still, the girl in the book, as it was, worked for me because at least it let me envision the possibility of that ending by showing me some powerful, subjective truths about a social problem that has affected me and pretty much every woman I know. Sometimes I can let a story off the story grid hook a little when it accomplishes great things despite its faults. Yeah, thanks a lot. And I don't even know what to say about that. It's a very powerful analysis. So Leslie, what, what's your take on The Girl in the Book? I'm going to talk about point of view and narrative device. And as I mentioned last week, if your genre is what the story is about, then the point of view or narrative device is how the writer tells the story. Now, John Truby talks about how once the writer has a premise that is a person in a setting with a problem, it's important to identify the problems and challenges that are presented by such a story. He talks about how these ideas are embedded within the story idea and how they help the writer find their true story. And I would argue also how they present it and what he calls the designing principle. And this is how you tell your story. What's really promising about this is that the seeds of how to tell the story in the best way can be found within its major problems or challenges. If we look at the girl in the book, what's the premise? Off the top of my head, I would say a young woman in the publishing industry who struggles to write her own stories has been asked to manage the relaunch of a book written about her by her abuser. So what are the major problems presented by this premise? The writer needs to show the lasting impact of abuse for people who experience it. And the present story makes sense only in light of what happened in the past. However, we can't cover the relevant past events in a brief prologue. But also then, if told as a linear story, the inciting incident would happen close to the middle of the running time. Before we talk about how Maria Cohn solved this problem, let's look at how the story is presented. So what's the experience? We have a sequence of events from the present story that are interwoven with flashbacks from a specific time in Alice's past. This technique is well executed in this film, and I'll come back to that later. What's the narrative device or situation? I admit this is highly subjective. You'll hear me say, it feels like, or it appears to be, 
because we don't have an overt narrative situation from the beginning, though there are some clues revealed by the analysis, you might experience the narrative device differently than I do. What I can say, if I had to guess, is that Maria Cohn had a very specific narrative situation in mind, and that specificity accounts for the narrative's consistency and the way it supports the story we're being told. In this case, to get at what I think the narrative device is, I need to look for clues in the point of view, because as Kim rightly mentioned, when it comes to the story, we use what we know to figure out what we don't know. So what's the point of view? In a film without an overt narrative device, we're not always certain what the point of view is. Now, it's clear in The Princess Bride, we're shown the third-person framing story of the grandfather telling his sick grandson a story. And in Bridget Jones's diary, the voiceover lets us know it's a first-person account. In this story, it feels like a third-person narrative. The narrating entity seems very close to the experience, but someone with perspective, so a narrator as witness rather than the protagonist within the story. It doesn't feel like a first-person account from Alice's diary or journal that would be a contemporary record of what happens when her boss gives her the worst possible assignment. The narrating entity also appears to be someone friendly, not judgmental, but dedicated to presenting the unvarnished truth. Can I interrupt you here for just a sec, Leslie, on point of view and narrative device? There was a key scene for me at about 24 minutes in where adult Alice is reading Milan's book uh, in the bathroom, sitting on the toilet reading as an escape from her unwanted surprise 29th birthday party. We don't know what she's reading, but then comes the flashback, right? And we see in this flashback, young Alice is lying face down on her bed with her feet up, how young girls do. And Milan, she's reading, and Milan is lounging back against the headboard of her bed, gazing at her from behind. Now, Alice, in the real time, could not have witnessed that longing gaze. And the point of view there is strongly Milan's in that moment. And it's as if adult Alice, back in her bathroom at the surprise party, is reading the scene in the book and reconstructing it. It's like a memory within a memory, a nested set of points of view. Now, this was the scene that made me wish that there really was a novel or a memoir to read, because the point of view and narrative device can do so much more in text than on film. And I honestly felt that this movie would have been better as a novel. For one thing, the book could have contained passages from Milan's novel and from young Alice's journal, and it would have made it clearer how he stole her writing as well as her innocence. I thought this point got a little glossed over in the film. Yes, and that's a fantastic example of the specificity in the narrative device and, and how it can be executed. So given all of this, what can we conclude about the narrative device? In other words, who is telling the story, to whom, in what form, and when? Well, I'm going to tackle the who and when first. The analysis makes me think that this is Alice's coherent narrative of events that she couldn't put together before and make sense of until after the fact. That is, this is Alice's objective narrative as a result of the perspective she gains with time. 
her transformation allows her to apply her professional skills to her personal story. Now, what form does this take? The form seems to be the piece that Alice is writing at the end of the story, which I'm guessing is a novel. In the beginning, it's as if Alice is still stuck in the moment when she jumps out of the car and she keeps running. She becomes the girl in the book and that position, if not set in stone, is at least set in print for her and what's in print is what's real. The only way she can escape her cycle of succumbing is to write her way out. The final flashback is that pivotal moment when Alice gets out of the car, and from then on, the narrative runs chronologically in the story's present. So to whom is this story being told? Well, the reader of the book that Alice is writing. Now, readers who are survivors of abuse can use the story to realize that they too can share their individual gifts in the world, that they are not limited by what's been done to them. The hard secondary lesson for parents and mentors is that if they are selfish and cannot recognize and support the expression of the individual gift of the vulnerable young people in their charge, then predators might do that and try to take advantage. So what are the takeaways for writers? This story, as I said above, is a great example of flashbacks done well. The trouble with flashbacks is that they don't move the story forward. They can only help us make sense of or see differently what is happening in the story's present. To execute flashbacks effectively, we need a stimulus or cause in the present story for the flashback to arise and another stimulus to bring us back to the story's present. Flashbacks should follow the same cause and effect rules as the rest of the story. So if the movement between the past and present is random, then you might wanna consider why you're using the flashback. Consistently in this story, there is a trigger that sends Alice into her memories of the past, and it's usually in an attempt to make sense of what's happening and what she should do. She gains some revelation, for better or worse, and then returns to the present where she makes a decision. So looking at the narrative device and point of view as a package, what did the filmmaker do for this story? Well, it feels like the events are woven together. As I think back over the story, I get an image of repairing a tear in a piece of fabric where the past is on one side and the present is on another, and the thread is a storyline that brings the two together in a coherent story. And I think this works really, really well for the story that the writer is trying to tell. And as I said last week, an effective narrative device can't fix the problems with content in the story. But It's how we tell the story, and it is as important as what the story is. And this raises an interesting question for me about how good does the story need to be before you submit or publish it? Of course, this is a personal decision, and especially challenging for writers who are constantly leveling up their craft. The skills we possess today are more advanced than the ones we possessed last year and not as advanced as the ones we'll have next year. We analyze stories here on the roundtable and point out where we think they can be improved, 
as if the storyteller were our client. Few stories are perfect, but many are good enough. At some point, as Seth Godin says, you must merely ship or you'll be stuck in limbo, much like Alice was. You get to decide when you think the story is good enough to ship and thinking about how you define good enough, both in advance and as you go along, is a good thing. Thanks, Leslie, for that. I know in the startup world, we have a saying that if you're not embarrassed by what you ship first, then you ship too late. Probably doesn't really apply <laughs> to writing because writing, you put it out there and it's hard to do Rev 1.0 or 2.0, but maybe the writer here just had to, to ship something and make it work because it's like 90% there. And that's a little frustrating when you're a story nerd like us. So Valerie, what's your take on the girl in the book? Okay, so we're all zooming in on the issue of genre and tackling it from different angles. I'm in absolute agreement with what Kim, Anne, and Leslie have said. I think this episode is really a masterclass in why genre is the first thing a writer needs to figure out. What story is it that you want to tell? And which of the genres will help you tell it best? I'm going to approach the genre question from the perspective of objects of desire. Now, Anna's writing a whole book on this, so you need to get that when it comes out next year. A few minutes ago, Anne said that the core truth of this film is how difficult it is for a woman to take back her own power when the sexual abuse she suffered has been condoned or dismissed by the authority figures of her youth. And I agree. Given that this is the case, it's essential for the audience to have empathy for Alice. How do we develop empathy? Well, on the macro level, it's through the hero's journey. And on the micro or scene-by-scene -scene level, it's through clearly articulated objects of desire. Empathy is the emotional connection that we, the audience, have to the protagonist and her story. As a quick refresher... In a well-crafted story, a character will have both a conscious want and a subconscious need. The beginning hook global inciting incident gives rise to the character's conscious want, and that want can shift over the course of the story. A character does not have to get what she wants, but she must get what she needs. In The Girl in the Book the beginning hook global inciting incident is that the re-release of Milan's 15-year-old bestseller has been moved up several months and Alice has been asked to manage the launch. From this opening scene, we know that handling the launch is a problem for Alice, although we don't know why. We also know that her boss does not take her seriously as an acquiring editor or really as an editor at all. She's more of his secretary. A conscious want has been stated. Alice wants her boss to read the manuscript. Why? Because she wants him to recognize that she is an editor, not a secretary. And she's a pretty good editor. This is stated outright later in the film when we learn that she's been an editor at the company for two years, but has yet to edit a book. A subconscious need has also been established and is reinforced as the story moves along. Alice needs to take back her power she is being dominated by men at every single turn, and she needs to learn to stop giving that power away so easily, or rather, allowing her power to be taken away so easily. 
As Kim said, from the first scene, it appears that we might be in for some kind of business performance story. Now, whether that's the global or secondary story is as yet unclear, but we're in that ballpark. It feels like the movie will be about Alice's triumph or failure at the workplace, and that outcome will depend on whether or not she regains her power. In terms of narrative drive, I'm asking myself, will the boss read the book? And will Alice get the recognition she deserves? Then, when we see that Alice is out of control, (laughs) additional questions come to my mind. Since the beginning, Hook Global Inciting Incident has planted the idea in my mind that this is a film about Alice's professional success or failure. I'm wondering how her behavior or her out of control behavior will affect her efforts to achieve her objects of desire. I'm also wondering how her domineering father will affect them as well. By the end of the beginning hook, we know that Alice and Milan have a history together, and we can guess what that history is. All kinds of questions are coming up in our heads. What exactly happened between them? How will Alice manage this launch? Will she confront him? Will she out him? Alice's best friend reinforces the idea that this is a story about Alice's career. She even says that Alice's job is not to manage book launches, but to, quote, find and edit new and wonderful novels. All in all, the beginning hook is very well crafted, and it sets viewers up for an emotional and riveting story. The objects of desire have been clearly established, and the narrative drive is strong because there are dozens of questions in our mind, and we can't wait to find out what happens. Then we hit the middle build, and in the middle build, we learn that Alice is really a writer by nature. It was hinted at in the beginning hook, but now it's a significant part of the story. We see her taking writing classes, learning from Milan, her friends ask about her writing, and so does Emmett. This is one area where confusion starts to creep in. We've been introduced to Alice as an editor, like that that is her career. But now we're seeing that her dream is to be a writer. And so we're starting to wonder if maybe that's the career she should be doing. So the effect of this is that it dilutes the impact of the objects of desire that were stated off the top of the film. If Alice does not have a burning desire to be an editor, then we don't have a burning desire to see her achieve her goal which is getting her boss to read the manuscript so her editorial talents can be recognized. She says that she wanted to be a writer when she grew up, but she isn't writing. And we never see her doing much writing in the present day, except, you know, for that blog and that little bit at the end. The effect of this ambiguity about her conscious want is that we, as an audience, don't know what we're supposed to be cheering for. Are we sad that she's not writing? Or is that a good thing because her talent is really editing? Or are we sad that she's editing because her calling is to be a writer? Furthermore, it distracts us from what this story is really about. Anne mentioned the love story with Emmett, and I agree that it falls flat. Because at no point prior to his introduction, are we set up to believe that what Alice wants or needs is a relationship In fact, we're set up to think exactly the opposite, right? That what she's going to have with this guy is a one-night stand. The love story subplot 
comes out of nowhere. She confesses love, but it doesn't ring true to the audience, or at least it didn't to me. It's clear that she enjoys hanging out with him, and he's definitely a good influence on her, but I don't know. Her love? Does she love him? I don't think so. And her proof of love is what? Promising to be the woman she thinks he wants her to be? This is exactly the opposite of what the story is about. And that is not the power position. (laughs) Emmett challenges her to write, but like I said, we've been led to believe she wants to be an editor. So I don't know. I, I got confused. Just before the midpoint, Alice is back at work asking her boss if he's read the manuscript they discussed in the beginning Hook Global Inciting Incident. It has been 30 minutes since this storyline came up, and it feels like the film is finally getting back on track. This is the story that they told us they would tell us. Alice even asks her father for his professional advice, which leads to the midpoint shift, which is Alice's father stealing the new writer from her and getting the credit for discovering her. This has been beautifully set up because we saw dad do this to Alice's mom. Alice then spirals completely out of control until 20 minutes before the end of the film when we see her start to write. Aha, we think. So she wants to be a writer. But no, (laughs) the blog is her way of begging Emmett to take her back. What does this have to do with the objects of desire that were established in the beginning hook? Nothing. Between the blog and her seduction of the babysitter, whatever empathy we had for her vanishes. It's beginning to look like Alice will get neither her conscious want nor her subconscious need, and we have a protagonist we no longer have empathy for. We might pity her, but pity is the nail in the coffin. It's empathy we want, because without it, we do not care what happens to Alice. And the movie's not over yet, so we got to care, so we keep watching. Okie dokie, in the ending payoff, Alice is offered a chance to edit the new manuscript from the author she discovered. Again, this is the story we thought we were going to be told, but how did this opportunity happen? Well, her father said that she was the one who pulled the first manuscript from the slush pile, so here we have her domineering father turning a new leaf because Alice managed to order her own meal at dinner. Yep, it's about just as weird as it sounds. (laughs) It doesn't make any more sense in the context of the movie. (laughs) Alice gets her conscious want, but she didn't do anything to earn it. She didn't become empowered and take control of her life. In fact, just the opposite happened. She remained disenfranchised. Although I'm really hoping that this is the beginning of something better for her. Kim and Anne have already discussed the core event in which Alice remains powerless, so I'll move on to the reconciliation with Emmett. Why would a film about a woman who needs to take back her power from the men who dominate her choose to publicly beg for a man to take her back? That is not the power position. That is the opposite of the power position. (laughs) So for all that, where does the girl in the book land in terms of objects of desire? Well, first of all, they're not clearly articulated because the genre isn't clearly articulated. Alice gets what she wants 
not of her own doing, but because a man who has power over her gives it to her. She does not get what she needs. And if you remember what I said when I began, a character doesn't have to get her want, but she must get her need. Here we have the reverse happening, and as a result, we have a story that, for all its potential and terrific setups, is kind of confusing and, in my opinion, doesn't work. Thank you, everyone, for bringing your gifts to this story today. I'm so appreciative of your insights. This story and stories like it are so important and are the kinds of stories that I'm looking to tell. I want to find a way to take control over our trauma and use them to shine a light for others. So I just really appreciate everyone digging in. I know it was a hard story, but I think it's important. So again, thank you so much. Okay, so Jari actually had to hop off the call early today, so I'm going to go ahead and step in and close us out. Here we go. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Caleb on Twitter. Caleb writes, The fool's cap is equal parts overwhelming and intimidating. Preach it, Caleb. Here we go. I've started a few and I keep second guessing myself and getting frustrated. I think I'm searching for the right answer. The value at stake and the obligatory scenes are usually where I get stuck. What's your process for actually completing the fool's cap and how long does it take you to put one of these together? Valerie, how about you tackle Caleb's question for us? Ah, Caleb, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. In terms of value shift and obligatory scenes, there are already loads of free resources available on the StoryGrid site to help you. For example, I wrote an article called Value Shift 101, and I did a bite-sized episode about it here on the podcast. Also, in the first two seasons of the show, we reviewed the conventions and obligatory scenes for each of the 12 content genres. So by all means, go check those out as well. In terms of my process for completing the Fool's Gap, it differs actually depending on whether I'm in the editing mode or in the writing mode. For editing, I watch the film or I read the book completely and then I do a Fool's Gap. It doesn't usually take me too long, you know, an hour maybe. But remember, that's because... At the time of this recording, I've done more than a hundred of them. When I started, I'd have to watch a film three or four times to be able to figure everything out. Now, depending on the story, I can do it in one or two viewings. When the round tablers started studying together, and I love telling this story, we discussed the act breaks for How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days for two hours. And that was after studying love stories for two days directly with Sean. So it takes a little practice. For novels, I read now with a stack of post-it notes next to me. As I read, I flag the act breaks and pages with key scenes on them. I'll still have to go back through the novel a second time though. When I started, it took me three months, full time, that is eight hours a day, to analyze Dracula. Now, in terms of writing, when I'm using the Foolscap as a drafting tool, it takes me much longer and the process is way different. This is the kind of information I'm sharing in my inner circle. So if you want more information on this, you can go to valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and sign up. But basically for the novel I'm writing now, I started working on my Foolscap a year ago and it's not finished yet. Now why, oh why, oh why? Is it taking me so long? 
believe me, I've given this a bit of thought. And the answer I've come up with is this. It's because I'm writing at the edges of my ability. And that's something I've just got to do if I want to level up my craft. In fact, I have three foolscaps for my current work in progress because there are three storylines. So the way to stop second guessing yourself and to avoid frustration is to study. It takes time to master these skills, but they can be mastered. The way to do it is through repetition. So find a bunch of stories that are in the same genre as the one you're writing in and complete a foolscap for them. By a bunch, I mean like 25 or more films and a half dozen novels. I'm actually not kidding. <laughs> if you don't want to do that, you can always hire a story grid editor to help you learn. Very few people are willing to put in this kind of effort, but those who do experience a quantum leap in their ability to write a story that works. If you're serious about being an author, it's a wise investment of your time and your money. Amen to that. If you have any questions about using StoryGrid fundamentals to diagnose a story that isn't working or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT. Or better still, go over to StoryGrid.com slash resources, click on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leave us a voice message. We would love to feature your voice. That wraps it up for this week and for Season 5 of the Editor Roundtable Podcast. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you and Leslie and Valerie and Jari for helping me out with this story, The Girl in the Book. We hope our discussion has helped you understand what makes a story not quite work and how you can fix it. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com, which we always recommend that you check out because they're fantastic. And if you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. Today's episode marks the 76th film we've analyzed and our 86th episode together. So we're taking a much needed break, but stay tuned because we'll be dropping a series of our popular bite-sized episodes over the next several weeks, starting next week when Anne interviews StoryGrid's queen of genre, Rochelle Ramirez. We'll be back with full-length episodes on December 11th. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. 